West Virginia has its share of ghost stories. We included the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park in our Abandoned Places episode, which is number 27 in case you missed that one. But they also have the Trans-Algany Lunatic Asylum that served as a hospital during the Civil War. That scores you automatic haunting status. Harper's Ferry has its own list of ghosts and haunts, not to mention Point Pleasant is the home of the Legend of the Mothman. But none of these ghosts or legends have taken their day in court to see justice served, quite like the Greenbrier Ghost. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Erasmus Stribling Shoe, a blacksmith by trade, arrived in Greenbrier in October 1896. He was more commonly known by his nickname, Trout. He said he came from the Droop Mountain section of neighboring Pocahontas County. He would chat with the locals, claiming he hoped to start his life anew. He was hired on as a blacksmith in the local shop owned by James Crookshanks and moved into William M. Livesay's former home as he had recently passed. He seemed friendly to most, but rumors have a way of spreading, especially with a newcomer to a small town. The men passed stories of hearing that he had served time for stealing a horse, which was true. The ladies would gossip about his previous marriages. According to reporter Shirley Donnelly, she writes, quote, The first Mrs. Shue was killed in a fall from a haystack. As for the second, she came to her untimely death when a stone fell from the chimney that was being repaired by her husband. Shue was up on the chimney and dragged the rocks up there to where he was working by use of a basket with a rope tied to it. Unfortunately, one of the rocks fell and hit Mrs. Shue on the head and killed her. The first account of Mrs. Shue was false. She actually divorced Shue for abuse and abandonment. They had one child together and she filed for divorce while he was in jail. The second account is true. They were only married for eight months. Zona Hester, 22, lived with her mother, Mary Hester, about 14 miles away from Shoe's home in Crawley. No stranger to the rumor mill, Miss Zona Hester reportedly gave birth to a child in 1895 out of wedlock. They could only imagine who the father might have been as none came forward to offer her a saving grace with a home and a marriage. In my research, I could find no trail of a child that was born, or if it really was just a rumor. Reporter Ms. Donnelly would write, quote, Shu soon shook off his sorrow and made the rounds of the community entertainments where he integrated himself with almost everyone. Apparently a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Miss Zona Hester, an attractive country girl, warmed up to Shu because she felt sorry for him. Barely knowing one another, Zona agreed to marry Shu in 1896. 
Zona's mother, Mary, did not approve of the marriage. In the winter of 1896, Dr. George W. Knapp was called to the Shoe residence. Dr. Knapp could not put a name to what ailed Zona. He would be called out to the home several times with her complaints and symptoms increasing, but Dr. Knapp was baffled. The ladies of the town believed that perhaps she was pregnant or suffering from female afflictions, and were hoping, perhaps more than believing, that Shu's doting and caring of his wife was real and not just for show. On the morning of January 22, 1897, Shu left his home to go to work at the blacksmith shop. Before he made it into work, he stopped by the home of Martha Jones. Shu asked if Martha's son, Andrew, could come to the house to collect their eggs from the hen house and then help his wife with some of the chores. He explained that Zona had not been feeling well for some time and seemed especially weak this morning. She agreed, but didn't send Andrew directly. She would return to Martha's house three times to ask for Andrew to be sent to the house as soon as possible. Side note, I know what you're thinking. If he was capable of visiting the Jones house that many times, he should have just collected the eggs himself and checked on his wife. It was later reported that Andrew did finally end up going to the home somewhere between the hours of 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. When he knocked on the door, no one answered. He proceeded to open the front door to enter. On the floor of the living room was the still, lifeless body of Zona Shu. She lay perfectly straight with her feet side by side, one arm at her side, the other across her stomach, and her head slightly tilted to one side. Andrew quickly left the house and ran straight to his mother, telling her what he had seen. They, in turn, went to the blacksmith to tell Shu the news. They all went running to the Shu home. Soon after, Dr. Knapp was sent for and arrived at the home after about an hour. When he saw Zona's body, imagine his surprise to find that she had been moved from where she was found. He discovered that Shu had taken her to the bedroom cleaned her body and dressed her in her finest gown and covered her face with a veil. Covered in lace from her high collar and long sleeves, only her dainty slippered feet peeked out from underneath. She was displayed as if the funeral was already underway. Let's not underestimate that this was done by her husband in less than an hour after he came home. It's important to also note that his actions added to the town's suspicions because it was tradition for the women to care for the deceased woman of the community. But it was also known that these things wouldn't be done until the doctor released the body following a thorough examination and or an autopsy. The Springfield Republican would report, quote, Shu was working at the shop in the morning and sent a Negro boy who was there up to the house to gather eggs with instructions to him to go to the house find his wife, and see if she wanted anything. The boy, going in, found her lying on the floor, dead. A physician and some neighbors summoned when the physician arrived, he found the body cold, evidence of the woman having been dead much longer than statements then showed. End quote. As Dr. Knapp settled in to do his investigation, he noticed bruising on her right cheek and jawbone. He touched her wrist for a pulse and found none noting that she was also quite cold to the touch. When he attempted to pull back the high lace collar, 
Shu demanded that he not touch her any more. He hovered over his wife's head protectively and demanded that Dr. Knapp leave. Reluctantly, he did. After all, there really wasn't anything else he could do to help her. The Greenbrier Independent would report that after Dr. Knapp was unable to resuscitate Zona, Rasmus Shu requested the doctor to, quote, make no further examination of the body, end quote. He would note on her death certificate she perished from heart failure, but in the official documents on the town's death registry, the death was noted as being caused from childbirth. Shu took care of all the arrangements, and soon his wife was displayed in her casket, ready to receive visitors. He had placed rolled-up fabric on either side of her head, and would later explain that they were placed there so she would feel comfortable. Those who came to pay their respects would later recall that Shu never left the head of his wife's casket. His behavior was said to be erratic, and he would pace back and forth along the casket, not allowing people to observe his wife for too long. The Independent also said, quote, He dressed the body and, in doing so, put around the neck a high collar and a large veil, sometimes folded in and tied in a large bow under the chin, that the head was observed by a number of witnesses to be very loose upon the neck and would drop from side to side when not supported. End quote. After the wake, Zona's remains were carried across the plains to Crawley to be buried in the Sewell Chapel Cemetery and this would make poor Trout Shoe a widower once again. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. Mary Jane Hester refused to acknowledge the cause of death to her only daughter, Zona, was due to childbirth. It didn't help the matter much that she didn't like her daughter's choice of husband, either. Just prior to the casket being put in the earth, Hester requested to take one of the white sheets from Zona's coffin. Shu gave his blessing, and Hester grabbed the sheet, clutching it close to her. Days after the funeral, the sheet began to smell. It put off a bodily odor. As much as she wanted to keep the white sheet intact, she couldn't stand the smell and immersed it in her wash bucket. The water almost immediately turned blood red. She scrubbed more but could not get the pink tinge from the sheet itself. She knew then that something bad had been done to her child but didn't know what to do. She turned to prayer for guidance. 
She prayed steadily for four weeks asking for guidance, asking for direction, asking what could she do. Mary would later state, quote, I was roused by a rustling sound in my bedroom. I saw the ethereal form of my daughter roaming about the room. Mary attempted to touch the apparition, at which it disappeared. She believed this sighting was a sign, and she prayed again for her apparition to speak to her. Her prayers were answered. According to Mary Hester, her daughter would return to speak to her on four separate occasions. With each visit, she was able to give her mother clues as to what happened to cause her death. She would reveal to her mother that it was indeed murder. Of course, the rumor mills of the small town, although curious to hear the tales of the visiting ghost, quickly dismissed any truth to them as they were obviously the delusional chatter of a grief-stricken mother. Being shunned by her community, she went to her brother-in-law and begged him to listen to her story and help her to get justice for Zona. Jonathan Hester believed her sincerity and offered to look into the detail further to see if they could find any supporting evidence. The pair would return to speak with both Martha Jones and her son Andrew to ask again what happened that day and how they felt Shu was behaving. With this new insight, Jonathan and Mary decided to take their information to the county seat of Lewisburg and told their story to the prosecuting attorney, John Preston. At first skeptical, Mary's story never wavered, and while it seemed a bit fantastical, ghosts aside, he believed that there might be a case. Preston began his investigation in Meadow Bluff, reaching out to physician William Knapp. As if a weight had been lifted from his guilty heart, Knapp confessed to the prosecuting attorney that he had been prevented from performing a thorough post-mortem examination by the husband. Head hanging low, he told them he believed wholeheartedly that his official diagnosis could be incorrect. Mm, both of them, actually. John Preston continued to interview others from the area, and before the day was over, he himself believed that Zona's death involved foul play. He ordered the body of Zona Hester Shue to be exhumed and a full, thorough autopsy be done. When the news got back around to Trout Shue, he was not pleased. It's rumor that he stated, either accidentally or on purpose, something along the lines of, if the body was dug up, he knew he would be arrested, but believed he would never be convicted. He was made to be present at the autopsy, not in the room, but in custody, just in case. On February 22, 1987, Zona's casket was disinterred and the body was taken to the local Nichols School to perform an autopsy. Since Knapp's reputation was a tiny bit marred for this second and more complete autopsy, Knapp was also accompanied by Dr. Rupert, Dr. McClung, and a five-man jury began their examination. The middle of winter, and not being buried for too awfully long, the body was still in good condition. Almost immediately, they discovered that Zona's neck had been broken. Thanks to the freezing temperatures, her body was still very much intact. They were able to see instantly the bruises about her neck and face. The Pocahontas Times would later report, quote, On the throat were the marks of fingers indicating that she had been choking. 
that the neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at the point of the front of the neck. End quote. It became quite clear that Zona's death had not happened from a heart attack or childbirth. Zona had been murdered. With this new evidence and Trout Shoe protesting the whole time, Zona's body was gently returned to its coffin and replaced back into the earth. Trout Shoe was placed under arrest for first-degree murder. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. The prosecution knew without a shadow of a doubt that Erasmus Shue was guilty, and Shue believed without a shadow of a doubt that they would never be able to prove it. John Preston and attorney Henry Gilmer had to find solid evidence to be able to get a conviction for Shue, Even though his bragging defamed his character for being an arrogant idiot, it did not prove his guilt in the court of law. No witness to the crime, no murder weapon, no agitated crime scene and the prime suspect had an alibi for when the body was discovered. The only evidence the prosecuting team had at their fingertips, literally, was purely circumstantial. While awaiting the trial, Shu would happily entertain reporters, regaling them with stories not so much that he was innocent, but that he would not be found guilty. Shu would be defended by Dr. William Parks Rucker, and the first black lawyer, James D. Gardner, to practice law in circuit court in West Virginia. On June 22, 1897, the Greenbrier courts convened, the state of West Virginia versus Erasmus Stripling Shoe. While John Preston believed that Mary believed the apparition told her of the demise of her daughter, John was in no hurry to bring that information to the court proceedings. He explained to his client that even though it was through this information that led to the exhumation of Zona, ghost or not, it was still from a secondary source, making it circumstantial at best. Maybe it would be best not to bring it up at all. Talking to ghosts, whether you are related or not, does not bode well to the mental stability assumption of witnesses. The prosecution began with witnesses Martha Jones, her son Andrew, and Dr. Knapp. The sheet that Mary Hester kept from her daughter's coffin, still stained pink, was entered as evidence. Mary Jane Hester was also questioned and released. The defense team stepped up to the plate. I'm sure you can guess who they called to the witness stand first. Mary Hester. Dr. Rucker had intended to humiliate Mary, lead the jury to believe that she was in no mental capacity to testify, and possibly put an innocent man in jail. Talking to ghosts? Really? And shame on the entire prosecution team for wasting the good people of Greenbrier's time with campfire ghost stories. He asks, quote, 
I have heard that you had some dream or vision which led to this post-mortem examination, end quote. If Dr. Rucker played his cards right, he was hoping to cast enough doubt that the whole case might get thrown out. They couldn't possibly get a conviction with a ghost as their main witness. However, knowing that John Preston encouraged her not to speak of the late-night visits from her dead daughter, she also couldn't lie on the witness stand, right? Mary's story never wavered. Despite how many different ways the defense attorneys posed their questions, she gave an impassioned account of pleading with the ghost to tell her what happened so she could bring justice to her only child. Mary would entertain the court with very specific play-by-plays of her conversations with her daughter. She would tell the court, quote, She told me he was mad he didn't have no meat cooked for supper. But she said that she had plenty, said that she had butter and apple butter, apples, and named over two or three kinds of jellies. And she says, Don't you think that he was mad and just took down all my nice things and packed them away and just ruined them? She came four times. The next time she told me that her neck was squeezed off just at the first joint is what she just told me, end quote. He countered with, Was this not a dream pressed on your distressed state of mind? She said, No, sir, it was no dream, for I was wide awake as I ever was. End quote. And yes, if you were curious, most of this research is coming from actual court reports, and each word was documented. Mary would continue explaining how she prayed to have the story told to her, but didn't know it would be through her own daughter. Then she told the jury about her final visit. Zona was wearing the dress she was murdered in, and she, quote, When she went to leave me, she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. The last night she was there, she told me she did everything she could do, I'm satisfied that she did do all that too, end quote. The defense lawyer again accused her of being in a dreamlike state because of her emotional distress, but she wouldn't budge. I don't dream when I'm awake. I was the nearest one to her. The Lord sent her to me to tell it, she would say. Dr. Rucker would press, quote, Now, I would like, if I could, to get you to say these were four dreams and not four visions or appearances of your daughter in flesh and blood, end quote. She stomped her foot with emphasis, saying, quote, I am not going to say that, for I am not going to lie, end quote. The court records indicated that Dr. Rucker kept trying to press that what she saw were in fact dreams, and when she wouldn't bend, asked then if they had any other conversations or did they just focus on her death. She would respond, quote, I just wanted the particulars about her death and I got them, end quote. Dr. Rucker eventually gave up the ghost, quite literally, and realized that he was not going to get her to break on the stand, knowing full well that if he didn't get her to testify that she made the whole thing up he would lose the case. The jury was on the edge of their seats, leaning in for every word. 
and when he brought up his client to take the stand for his own defense, I can only imagine his lawyer wanting to facepalm his forehead when Shu looked to the jury box and say, quote, Just look into my face and then say if I am guilty. End quote. The Greenbrier Independent would report, quote, His testimony, manner, and so forth made an unfavorable impression on the spectators. End quote. Even though the testimony was at the very least circumstantial, not to mention unorthodox, the judge had to admit it since it was brought forth and entered into evidence by the defense and not the prosecution. The newspaper would report, quote, The jury, after being out one hour and ten minutes, returned into court with a verdict of murder in the first degree, as in the indictment, but recommended that the accused be punished by imprisonment, which means under the law that he be confined in a penitentiary for the term of his natural life. Though the evidence was entirely circumstantial, the verdict meets general approval, as all who heard the evidence are satisfied of the prisoner's guilt. End quote. While the paper stated the verdict met general approval, there were a few that did not agree. Two days following the completion of the trial, arrangements were made to move Shu to the penitentiary. An angry mob formed determined to lynch the murderer in a nearby field. The sheriff and his deputy were able to thwart the attempt and hid the prisoner for a few days until things quieted down. Then they continued their journey to West Virginia Penitentiary in Moundsville. On March 13, 1900, Erasmus Shu died. No one from his family came to claim his body, so he was buried in an unmarked grave in a potter's field on the prison's property. Was Mary Hester visited by the spirit of her murdered daughter? The town seemed to believe and support her, having the character traits of an honest, God-fearing woman. Others believe she concocted the whole story to bring justice to her daughter for the brutal murder. People would wonder, how did she know to describe the dress she was wearing on the day she died, as she lived 14 miles away? How did she know to describe the manner in which she died? How did she know that her husband had already packed up her things before she was even put in the ground? Following the trial and the conviction, it said that Trout Shoe requested an audience with Judge McWhorter from the trial and was said to have confessed that Mary Hester's version of events was 100% true. Perhaps he was trying to clear his conscience. Maybe he believed Zona came back and snitched, and maybe was perhaps a little afraid of the afterlife. Or maybe he just needed to unburden his chest. Mary Hester died in 1916 and never recanted her story. This was the only case in history in which the testimony from a ghost, although secondhand, has been instrumental in convicting a murderer. The house that Zona Shu was murdered in still stands today and is owned by residents who know all the details of its past. They have reported that Zona Shu has not made her presence known. Perhaps she feels her death has been vindicated and she is free to move on to another, more peaceful realm. And that's it for today's episode. I'd love to hear your feedback. Was Zona unable to find rest until justice was served? Or 
was Mary clever and strategic in getting her daughter's voice heard? You can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at Bag of Bones Podcast, or you can even send me an email through the website at elizabethbougeret.com. And if you haven't, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. It helps get the podcast out in front of new listeners. Thank you in advance. Guys, next week is our 100th episode. You may not know this because I am so laid back and chill about all these things, but I am pretty excited. I have decided that Season 3 is going to be a springboard for massive Bag of Bones podcast growth. That's right. I said it. Putting it out into the universe. I hope you'll join me next week because I am dying to share with you the vision I have for the podcast's future. I believe that we had to have two seasons under our belt before we could even start to dream beyond putting out a weekly episode. But now, I think we're ready. I've learned so much over these last 99 episodes. Not just about the episode topics, which I don't think I will ever get tired of exploring, but also the art, science, and business of podcasting. I started this whole adventure as just a writer with a penchant for dark and creepy history, but now I feel like I'm earning my podcast degree of sorts. And then there's you. All of you. What an amazing group of dark and creepy history fans this podcast has assembled. Oh, I have so much to share. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.